So this morning I want to, in a way, um, give gratitude to one of my own, as it were, mentors and someone who's been a great uh, benefactor in the development of wisdom and uh, a big heart and courageous action and, and someone who had a birthday two days ago, and that's Dr. Martin Luther King. So what I'd like to explore is the way that the life and work of Dr. King is deeply connected and in a sense another expression of our core practice, of what we do here. And I want to organize it particularly through three themes. And the themes come from what the Buddhist in Vietnam expressed as a way of slightly reframing their practice in the context of the decades of war that occurred in Vietnam in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Some of you know that the practice, the transformative work that we do, has historically often been expressed through a phrase like, the Dharma is a bird that has two wings that carry it, and those two wings are wisdom and compassion, that we especially develop in wisdom and compassion, and that these are the two core aspects of our training, of how we bring mm, the practice into our lives. In Vietnam, interestingly, they felt that that was not quite adequate. Interestingly. And they said, we need wisdom, we need compassion, but we also need courage. And as, as it were, the courage was necessary to bring the wisdom and compassion into difficult times into action. And I really love that addition. It speaks a lot to me. Maybe it speaks to you. And I was reflecting on the division of wisdom and compassion and courage. And interestingly also, there's a way that it relates to the way, to the different parts of our experience. It's that wisdom has especially to do with insight, the the mind, the understanding, Compassion has especially to do with the heart, with the opening of the heart. And then, interestingly, courage has a lot to do with the body, with the bringing of the body into the realities of life. So I like that way that the wisdom, compassion, and courage corresponds also to this way that we really train in the understanding, the, the mind, the intelligence, We train in the opening of the heart. And we also train in the ability to bring the wisdom and compassion into action, into the realities of our lives. And particularly, uh, maybe not particularly, but importantly, importantly, in uh, difficult circumstances. You know, that our practice is especially valuable with the challenges of our lives. And it's where they, it becomes a tremendous resource in the kinds of situations that we name at the end of the sitting, situations often of difficulty, or in situations of conflict, where it's really important to be able to call on these three aspects. And I was thinking that a lot of times in difficult situations we forget what's most important. This relates to that question about deeper intentions. And so it's helpful sometimes just to go into a potentially difficult situation and say, wisdom, compassion, courage. Just that simple repetition can be really helpful. Can you imagine if you went into all situations remembering wisdom, compassion, and courage? What a difference it would make? Somehow we forget it because we just get triggered often and our habits just come into play and wisdom, compassion, and courage may be far away or they may feel far away. And so I was thinking that it would not be a bad idea to have little signs saying wisdom, compassion, and courage, you know, 
on our dashboards, by our telephones, on our walls, tattooed onto our hands. You know, it would not be a bad because we forget, don't we? So I wanted to organize this talk on the Dharma and Dr. King into these three themes. So I'll have a section on wisdom, which will express, especially be organized in terms of the wisdom of understanding the roots of suffering. And secondly, on compassion and love and the opening of the heart. And thirdly, on courage. And for each of the sections, I want to uh, either play a tape of Dr. King speaking or read something from his work for each of the three. And that will be the structure of my talk. So I had fun preparing for this, as you can imagine. <laughs> it's really... Uh, it's. Uh, it's a privilege to be in the presence of the words and the ideas. And I'll, but I'll make the connections very explicitly with the teachings of the Buddha and the practices that we do. Because I think they're pretty close, very, very close. So first I thought I'd play a passage from Dr. King to remember some of his words and the way that he speaks and the power and the energy. And you can think, I think that his words express a pretty mature integration of wisdom, compassion, and courage. Because that's ultimately, we want to integrate the three and integrate mind, body, and heart and these qualities. So here's Dr. King, I believe, reading from the famous letter from a Birmingham jail that he wrote as a long letter. He said it was the longest letter he ever wrote in his life. It's like 15 pages in the book. I've never written such a long letter. And this is from near the beginning. He was arrested and spent several days, I believe, in 1963 in the Birmingham jail as part of a movement of civil disobedience, of nonviolent action against the um, segregation laws. And he wrote this uh, especially addressed to the so-called liberal, white, moderate clergymen, especially clergy persons, but especially clergymen who said that he was basically being a rabble-rouser and that he should not engage in this action. And here's, here's what he... This is part of his response. But more basically, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophet of the century B.C. left their villages and carried their birth, saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greek or Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. It's powerful to hear that voice, isn't it? And you can hear the wisdom teachings there. You can hear that we are caught inescapably in a network of mutuality. He says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. 
And this is part of the wisdom teaching. In the Buddhist teaching, the core wisdom teaching is the teaching about the the roots of suffering and the roots of freedom. And it's very directly connected to the teachings that we have from King about nonviolence and about the roots of violence and how we have to respond. In the teachings of the Buddha, we know this, especially in terms of the Four Noble Truths that are really a very clear analysis of the reality of suffering, the cause of suffering, the possibility of freedom, and as it were, the causes of freedom, causes of freedom. The first being that there is suffering, suffering defined as not so much as having difficult circumstances or pain, but the kind of reaction and the, the, um, way that we can't be with what's difficult, and so we, as it were, react, lament, go off in all sorts of ways, very much like we have something difficult happen. I have a difficult comment from a friend, a painful emotion, and it's hard for me to just be with that, and so I may blame the friend or blame the blame myself for what's happening. The Buddha expresses the teaching especially in terms of this famous uh, teaching about the two arrows, which I love to uh, explore, which is that teaching that all of us have a certain amount of pain. This is that first arrow. We all have the pain of... um, physical pain, emotional pain, sometimes the pain of unfairness or injustice, the pain of loss, and so forth. That's a given of human experience. It's not so much seen as a problem. What's seen as a problem is how we react to it, the way that I have a physical pain and I don't want it there. I contract around it. This reality that Doctors say that most of what people experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but the reaction to the stimulus. They say 80% of what people actually physically experience as pain is not what's originally there, but it's the contraction around it. Not hard to see in terms of the emotions. I have an emotional difficulty. It may be a kind of sadness or frustration, and I go off. I blame myself, I blame others, I brood about it, I think about it, I expand it. In Buddhism, there's a technical term called papancha, which means conceptual proliferation. It's what we do with the givens of our experience, that we proliferate, we expand, and I think we know, many of us, that that experience. And so what the Buddha says is that the problem of life is not so much the reality of pain, we might say, pain just being the given experience. The real problem, he says, is that because of the pain, it's as it were, we shoot the second arrow. Because of pain, we, I like to use the phrase, we pass on the pain to others who are ourselves. Because my co-worker says something nasty to me, I say something nasty in return to my co-worker. My co-worker then, in turn, says something nasty to me. Often we escalate, we raise the stakes, and we're suddenly, what was an original pain that lasted for five or ten seconds has become a grudge that can last for two years. All because we don't know how very well how to be with the original pain. The Buddha says that what the practitioner does is learns how not to shoot the second arrow. Learns how, and this means that we have to develop the capacity to be with the unpleasant without reactivity. It's a big part of our training in meditation that we actually sit and we learn, can I just be with a physical pain and relax into it? Very hard part of our training. And again, it's not to say that we just 
that we sit with pain when it's doing damage. But a lot of our sitting, we can sit with minor pain that's going to go away. And it's actually part of the training in the meditation process. We also can sit with emotional pain and learn, can I just be and explore the sadness, the anger? Often we've never learned to do that because at the first appearance of sadness or anger or fear, we have the habits that we go somewhere with it. I have sadness and I, you know, I go somewhere with it. I, maybe I try to find some way of relief by eating or by doing something, sometimes skillful, sometimes not so skillful. But the core of the practice is that we learn to be with what's the unpleasant so we don't actually shoot the second arrow of reacting. And actually there's a parallel. The teaching is expressed in terms of two arrows, but we could, there's a parallel to the teaching, which is that we learn to be with the pleasant without grabbing and trying to repeat it. That we learn to be with the pleasant and see what it's at and know that we have tendencies with the pleasant to try to keep it always there, to grab, to control, to, mm, to grasp. And so this is one way <coughs> of understanding the teaching of the Four Truths. What's interesting is that it's completely parallel to, to uh, Martin Luther King's teaching about nonviolence. What nonviolence is essentially saying is that if I have had violence done to me, I can see a tendency to want to do violence to the oppressor, to the person who has hurt me. But what he says and what the teachings of Gandhi and King say is that that just continues that cycle. That reacting to harm or violence by, in, by inflicting another cycle of harm continues the cycles of violence, which, of course, we see everywhere in the world. And so the teaching of King is that we have to break the cycles of reactivity, break the cycles of violence, basically address harm or violence or oppression with understanding, love, and the refusal to inflict further injury. Easy to say, hard to practice. But what's very important for me is that this is a teaching, both of what we do in individual experience with our own sadness or physical pain, but it's also something that we do in interpersonal relationships. And King is saying it's also something that we do in a social movement can be the basis for a social movement, for a community movement, that we take a vow, it's both a way of understanding and a wisdom teaching that the sources of pain with, when there's not wisdom get cyclically continued. And that if we want to intervene to meet suffering or to meet oppression or to meet violence, we have to break the cycles. Again, not easy always to do, but the understanding is very basic. That's why King said the means of our movement have to be just as pure as the ends. We can't get to some imagined goal by using means that are violent. We can't get to a good solution using the means of violence because actually we'll never get there. We'll just continue the cycles. It's a deep teaching, isn't it? But what I love is that it's totally the same teaching as the teaching of the two arrows. Both of them see the cycles, both the Buddha and King. The Buddha once said, some of you know, the famous teaching in the Dhammapada, hatred never ends by hatred. Hatred only ends by love. This is an ancient teaching. He says this is an ancient and primordial teaching. And so that's how we, that's how we work. The second fundamental aspect is a teaching about love and a teaching about compassion. And in a way... We get this, in, in Buddhist practice, we get this especially through the teachings of metta, 
of the development of the open heart. Some of you may remember the Metta Sutta. The Buddha says, one must develop this quality of kindness and love and bring it to all beings, barring none, to the weak and the strong, to the great and the small, much as a mother would love her child, her only child. We bring this out into the world. And we cultivate that in the practice here. We cultivate in doing metta practice or loving-kindness practice as we're doing up the hill for an entire week, like 16 or 18 hours a day. It's a training in opening the heart. And so we first learn to have an openness of heart towards ourselves. And then we gradually extend it out to people that we feel very close to. This is the way the practice of metta works. And then gradually out beyond just our circle of those close to us, our inner circle of affection, we gradually bring the quality of kindness out towards all people, all, in fact, all beings. And this is the direction. And it's a very similar understanding as we find in King. King said that the force for change has to come from love. Much as, we, as I expressed before in the teachings of the Buddha and the teachings of King, the other side of nonviolence is love. And I'll just read a few passages from him, a very powerful passage. This is from one of his last speeches. And it really points to the centrality of love in, uh, as a basis for action. Sometimes he's fond of saying we often think of love as being a weak force, but he thinks that it's very strong. This is what he said. And it really, it's also very much related to the metta practice because you'll hear him saying this as an intention. In metta practice, we don't say, I should be loving, but we remember to incline the heart towards kindness. It's very related to your question about intentions. Metta practice is not a forcing a production of love from myself, but it's saying, I want to remember to incline my heart towards love. And I don't always get there. But I remember that deep intention. That's what metta practice is. And you'll hear something very similar in this passage from King. I have decided to love. Intention, you hear that? I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong when we do it, because John was right, God is love. He who hates does not, he who hates does not know God, in, in the Christian language King is speaking, but one who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, you can find it through love. One who hates does not know God, but one who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. So love becomes a force for change. Thich Nhat Hanh, in talking about the Buddhist movement in Vietnam, said, Nam said something very similar. He said, he linked, in fact, nonviolence and love. He said, the essence of nonviolence is love. Out of love and the willingness to act selflessly, strategies, tactics, and techniques for nonviolence arise naturally. Other struggles may be fueled by greed, hatred, fear, or ignorance, but a nonviolent one cannot use such blind sources of energy, for they will destroy those involved and also the struggle itself. Nonviolent action, born of the awareness of suffering and nurtured by love, is the most effective way to confront adversity. We're getting a lot of power here, aren't we? <laughs> These are powerful beings giving very strong teachings. Nonviolent action, born of the awareness of suffering and nurtured by love, is the most effective way to confront adversity. 
So I'll just mention one other thing about love. If you listen to a lot of King's speak, uh, speeches, he also is both being critical of aspects of the country, sometimes aspects of the government, as when he spoke against Vietnam. But he says, he repeatedly says, and it's something very moving for me to hear this, he continually talks about his love of America. There's a deep love there that maybe is hard for us, especially if we've been finding ourselves critical of the government. That love can sometimes feel far away. We mostly just feel, some of us can feel mostly the criticism. And so it's powerful for him to speak of this love of the country and love of the people. Sometimes he speaks of loving America so much he wants to help save its soul. This is a deep love and a basis for action. And I want to move to the third way that, this, that the teachings come forth, the way that King's life comes forth, and that's in terms of courage. This ability to be with difficulty and to speak with power. And I want to start with another um, tape, a uh, listening to King's actual voice. This is the beginning of the famous speech that he gave on April 4th, 1967, when he first spoke out against the war in Vietnam. It was a very courageous speech. He actually died exactly one year to the day after this speech, on April 4th, 1968. And in this speech, he came and talked about how he wanted to oppose what he saw as the injustice and immorality of the war. This was controversial at the time. Many of those in the civil rights movement criticized him for this. He got tremendous criticism from the government, from many other civil rights advocates who said, you shouldn't mix civil rights and talking about foreign policy. And so this was a courageous action for which um, many people refused to support him after this. And the excerpt of the talk that he gave is actually right at the beginning, and he talks about the need for the courage to speak out and act in a difficult time. So I want to play an excerpt from that. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I'm in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines. A time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt. But the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexing as they often do in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak 
is often a vocation of agony, but we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision, but we must speak. And we must rejoice as well, for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. <clears throat> Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance, for we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of their concerns, this query has often loomed large and loud. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I'm nevertheless greatly saddened, for such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. There's a lot there, isn't there? Maybe just to say a few other words about the, this third theme of courage. It's interesting to, I feel, it's um, an interesting act to follow. <laughs> to have him speak and then speak. I feel the... I feel my own voice in relationship to his voice. And this um, quality of courage is really crucial in our practice. It takes a lot of courage to look directly at our own minds and hearts, doesn't it? And to go into their depths, to be able to look at our own patterns of mind, our own habits, to not go with the easy way of just following the way we've always done things, but really the, it takes a lot of courage to look deeply. It takes a lot of courage also to bring our practice out into the world. Other people don't always like it when we speak honestly or when we invite um, a clear seeing into the nature of suffering when we try to bring our practice into, into the world. The Buddha once said, I do not fight with the world, but the world fights with me. So that's good to remember. The Buddha got resistance too. Everything just wasn't smooth, right? The Buddha just didn't go there with his glow, and people said, oh, I'm totally not going to act like I used to just because of your glow, Buddha. And, but no, they actually, there were people who criticized him. Some of you know there was, uh, his cousin actually attempted to kill him. There were conflicts. So the Buddha says, I do not fight with the world, but the world fights with me. So there's an asymmetry there. And it's, again, what do you do when you get difficult things coming at you? It takes a lot of courage and trust to say, I am not going to continue the cycles. I am going to try to find a better way to work. King expressed this in terms of the courage not to cooperate with evil. That's his language. He, said, he talked of a moral obligation 
to refuse to cooperate with evil, it takes a lot of courage. Very similar, Gandhi said, the first principle of nonviolent action is that of non-cooperation with everything humiliating. And this, of course, can lead to a certain amount of one's own pain, sacrifice, loss, that it's not just totally an easy ride with this practice of transformation. It takes courage to know that sometimes we will act wisely and we will be um, hurt. We will be scorned. We will get into difficulties. It takes a lot of courage to do that. This is really the courage in the Buddhist tradition of the bodhisattva. The bodhisattva gets training so that the bodhisattva can enter into difficult circumstances in order to help others. Bodhisattva being the being that's dedicated both to one's own awakening and the awakening of others. Bodhi meaning awakening, sattva meaning being, a being dedicated to awakening. And in the training of the bodhisattva, and we could think that we're actually all training to be bodhisattvas. Because what does a bodhisattva train in? A bodhisattva trains, and sometimes there's actually a listing of what you train in. And there's, let me see, I have the list here. The One trains in ten qualities. Ten, they're in Pali, they're called paramis, in Sanskrit paramitas. means perfections or virtues. Sylvia's last book was about this very model. Remember, pay attention for goodness sake. This is about the development of the qualities. I'll just mention what they are. The first is generosity. The second is ethical conduct. The third is patience. Patience is not an add-on. It's a really important quality that a bodhisattva or one who is developing the courage to act has to develop in patience. Effort, her energy. Bodhisattvas aren't slackers. (laughs) Meditation, the ability to be mindful, to know one's own being. Wisdom, Skillful means, the ability to act skillfully in challenging circumstances. Commitment, bodhisattvas are there. That takes courage to just constantly be there. The the ninth is power, and the last is knowledge, this deep knowledge of the nature of things. And so I think I'll, I'll end with that kind of invocation of the of the power of um, these qualities to help us with courage. And I think I'll end with a very short passage from the speech that King gave the last evening of his life. Some of you know that he was in Memphis, Tennessee, supporting a strike by mostly African-American, I believe, uh, maintenance workers and and custodians, some of you know that history, and he was, he was um, shot the next day. This is, but he gave a, a speech which seemed to have premonitions of his own mortality. Some of you have seen that. It's a very powerful speech. And this is what he said on that last night. It shows the courage and the power. It's an excerpt from a longer speech. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing anyone. It doesn't matter what will happen with me because I've been, he says, to the mountaintop. So it really shows that connection of the courage with the wisdom and the deep heart, which is really this uh, beautiful sense of practice that we're given, I think, both from the teachings of the Buddha and by the life and work of this uh, amazing being that we call Martin Luther King. Thank you. Happy birthday. There's a lot there, isn't there? There's a lot, so I don't know whether it's more appropriate just to stay in silence for a while. We have room for questions, for comments, but they could—they don't have to be questions. They could just be 
statements of how you're feeling right now. That, that would be perfectly fine. Uh, Linda Marie? Yeah. And I'm wondering how we um, equate patience, which is one of the bodhisattva yeah. vows, with that uh, desire to, to not betray. He was talking about that uh, betraying his own conscience, right? Right. Right. Yeah, I think so. That, that It's really a question about the relationship of patience and maybe authenticity, which relates to the questions about the different voices inside that... Uh, remind me of your name? Claire. Claire, that Claire was giving. How do I have patience and really follow my deeper intentions, my more authentic voice? Is that a fair way, Linda Marie? So... Let's see what my answer is. <laughs> um, yeah, patience is not a passivity. Patience is not a quality of just letting whatever's happened happen. I think that's not the sense of patience, but Patience partly comes, I would say, I'd link it in two ways maybe. Patience partly comes through an understanding of how change occurs. That change often occurs slowly and we can't demand. So it's really a way of saying, how can I look at my own mm, greediness for things to happen quickly? And how can I have a deeper understanding of how change comes? And how can I not demand, for example, that this person in front of me should have clarity and wisdom right now? So it's partly an understanding of the change process. And it may also relate to patience in my own development or evolution. So I can not maybe be so harsh if I betrayed myself in the past or if I was following an inauthentic voice in the past because I know that it takes time also for me to develop. So I think patience is connected a lot with kindness. But it's not a... I think it's completely uh, compatible with urgent action. I was thinking of... There's a Milarepa, the great Tibetan saint, once said, hasten slowly. And so there can be, patience doesn't mean wait, don't do what your deep, authentic voice is saying to act. So patience doesn't mean at all not doing, not acting authentically. So maybe that's a beginning response. Yeah, please. Um, I, I didn't hear it so much in the excerpt that you played uh, this yeah. morning. I really appreciated the ones you did play, but there's a side of, of Martin Luther King that um, is very uh, powerful, very passionate. Yeah. His voice uh, sometimes shakes with passion. Yeah. And uh, speaks very loudly. Yeah. Forcefully. Yeah. Um, there's a side, in most of the teachers that come to teach Buddhism, that yeah, it feels like it comes out of a place of very deep peace. Yeah. Very deep connectedness uh, with equanimity. Yeah. And I seldom hear that kind of passion. Yeah. Um, um, there's something about passion that's, that's full of life yeah. and juice and uh, I don't, maybe Rumi sort of energy yeah, maybe the kind of energy I hear in Rumi yeah, or yeah. Or Rumi or Afiz or Martin Luther King so a beautiful question about the place of passion, the kind that we hear with Martin Luther King, which also seems to, another way to add to I think your question, say that it, it feels like sometimes the energy of anger at oppression is not so far away. You know, and c- contrasting that with most of the Buddhist teachers 
here, I think not universally, but maybe more peaceful, gentle, may not have that same quality of passion that we find or the, the energy of anger may, may not seem so close. Or uh, King talked about transformed anger. You know, and, and, and so it's a, it's a very, actually a very deep question and an important question. And it's one I've thought about personally quite a lot, and maybe many of you has. I mean, it's, it's a multidimensional question, or a response would be multidimensional. I mean, it partly has to do with asking another question. Are Buddhist practitioners overly nice? Uh, or how do we relate to passion or energy, or do we understand the teachings to mean that this is uh, dangerous territory to get into? I think all of those are present sometimes. You know, do, would you want to add something? Well, I wonder if it's related to your comment about courage. Because yeah. This third part, and, and, and yeah. the Vietnamese Buddhist talking about courage. Yeah. And I guess for myself, I, it's something about the courage to let out my spirit, to let out yeah. the juice in my life. Yeah. Versus staying calm and in a um, more controlled place. Yeah. And it also has to do, I think it's related to what you just said about letting your spirit out, the quality of expressiveness. And I think, to be honest, I think that, th- that we are sorting that question out at this very time because in some ways it has to do with what is a way of integrating these beautiful teachings about wisdom and compassion and peace with, uh, really in some sense, with uh, what's appropriate at these times in our culture knowing that every time that Buddhist practice, for example, has gone to another culture, it's been expressed somewhat differently. The Buddhism of China is very, very different from the Buddhism of India. You have the, a lot of the qualities of Taoism come into Buddhism. We find it in Zen. It's, uh, and a lot of the actual practices are somewhat different. Uh, and so there are big changes, and it's natural to think of the same thing happening in relationship to the integrating the valuable aspects of Buddhist practice in Western culture. And so it's, it's, a, it's a huge question, actually, but one of the ways of focusing on that is to ask about what's the difference between a Buddhism that's been primarily defined for people who were monks and nuns as opposed to people who were primarily not so involved, let's say, with families, with jobs, with being concerned about immediate social change, with being citizens, and so forth. What's, what does this expression of mindfulness and wisdom and compassion look like in this very different setting? And I think it leads very directly to the question of what's the place for passion? And can there be a way of um, working with that energy? We are not secluded. We are up against noticing when there is injustice or oppression and how do we respond to it. It's a different kind of life. And these kind of questions come forth. And so I think that we're in some ways uh, looking, uh, I hope that we keep on raising that question. And I I, I would say that um, I know that it's important for me uh, and some of it's also the difference between the a- Asian cultural forms and our cultural forms. Certain kinds of uh, out there expression are a little different in Asia than they are here. And so we're trying, I think, I'm uh, giving uh, an answer, I think, which, which um, points to some of the complexity of the question and the fact that it's a very big question. But it's something that I think we each have to ask you know, how do we relate to passion? Um, because sometimes even in the translations, passion is seen somehow to be a problem, the way we get the translations in Buddhist texts. I think there are problems of the translations there. And, but I think there are some significant cultural differences. I would like to think that it's possible, and I believe this in my own life, that it's possible to have that kind of passion, to be more comfortable with going into the territory of anger and transforming anger 
at injustice or against, about oppression or unfairness or whatever, that it's possible to integrate the qualities of passion and transformed anger with the qualities of peace and wisdom and mindfulness. And I, uh, it's actually a, a major theme that we'll be looking at in this two-year program that we're, that, uh, that's starting in April called The Path of Engagement. You know, this training program that I'm directing, where we're, I think that'll be a primary focus because there's a creative tension that is fruitful between going into the silence, the peace, the understanding, and then coming out and living one's life in the world. Do you get that sense? Do you know? We probably know it ourselves. There is a creative tension. It's not like we're just trying to make our lives like the peace that we feel in meditation. There's something more happening. Is that, is that making some sense? And so that's... A, I'm sorry, it's a, in terms of time, I have to give a short answer. I could... I'm sure we could talk about it. Maybe we can look at that. Maybe we should have another theme be, what's the place of passion? Would you like that? Yeah. To look at that? Or what's the... How do we... Is anyone interested in exploring anger? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Tricky. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but I'll 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 register that as as because uh, it's re- I'm I'm inter- I'm passionate about that theme. <laughs> Maybe many of you are. So, uh, in terms of time, we have to end now. And I know that uh, I could continue this discussion another hour or two, or day or week or two. And probably many of you could. So let's, uh, maybe we'll, I'll, I'll see about next week and what the theme would be. It would be a natural flow to continue. And I'll kind of see what comes through, but I'm, I'm registering that as a wonderful question, as well as that question about the authentic voices and intentions. They're, they're all interrelated. So I want to just say that I'm hearing those themes and we can continue. So I invite you maybe in closing to consider having in your home, on your dashboard, by your computer, by your phone, the three words, wisdom, compassion, and courage, or wisdom, compassion, slash love, and courage, because they're really guides, beautiful guides to our practice and our lives. So let's just sit quietly for a minute to, to finish. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.